0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You'll be hearing from lots of eminent scientists soon because Science Week is coming up. So it's a good time to consider how much we trust what scientists say. In the past year, we've gone from a quarter of Australians being sceptical of science reporting to almost a third of us. More and more people are doing their own research, as they say, and cherry-picking what science they will accept. What implications does this have for the big public health and public policy issues that we're grappling with right now? This is Life Matters on Wurundjeri Country. Public trust in science is high in Australia, but there are gaps. Some people might have no trouble trusting aeronautical scientists, for example, when they're boarding a plane, but they might be suspicious of epidemiologists saying we should get vaccinated or researchers telling us genetically modified food is safe to eat. And public mistrust of science can have big ramifications. Climate change is a prime example there. John Cook is a postdoctoral research fellow at Monash University in Melbourne. He's been looking at what kinds of beliefs about science are circulating and how they're affecting our attitudes to some big policy issues. John, welcome to Life Matters.
0: Hi, uh, great to be here.
1: Great to have you here. Now, tell us first what's being said out there. What kinds of misinformation have you been seeing?
0: Um, what, what we're finding is probably the biggest form of misinformation is not necessarily about the science. It's it's more about um, attacking scientists or, or attacking like climate science itself, um, trying to, I guess, erode public trust in scientists and the science.
1: So actual attacks on the credibility of particular scientists, or is it more generalised?
0: Both, really. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and, and also um, specific aspects of climate science, like climate models or climate measurements, uh, generally, the, the arguments tend to be, you can't trust climate science, therefore we shouldn't act on the science and do something about climate change.
1: And John, you found five key climate disbeliefs. Uh, what's the, the kind of weighting given to each of them? How bad is, is the uh, the 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 kind of internet weight being thrown behind each of those beliefs?
0: Yeah, so the five climate disbeliefs are, it's not happening, it's not us, it's not bad you can't trust the experts and the solutions won't work. We found that you can't trust the experts or the science was the biggest category, but also climate misinformation is transitioning away from the science misinformation, like it's not happening or it's not us, more towards solutions misinformation. So there is this gradual evolution or transition from science denial to solutions denial.
1: Okay, so instead of we can't trust that the ice caps are melting or it's not going to get as warm as they say it will, it's more it's too expensive or difficult to to make these changes?
0: Exactly. It's saying that, that climate policy won't work or it's going to harm the economy or or solar power panels don't work at night, that kind of stuff. Okay.
1: And John Cook, where is this misinformation happening? Is it mainstream media or uh, online sites and Australia-specific or, or global? What, what are you seeing?
0: We've found that conservative think tanks or conservative organisations are a big um, like, wellspring, like a source of the misinformation, and then it spreads through climate blogs, um, uh, online, social media, and then and then it does seep into mainstream often through politicians. So when, you, when poli- sorry yes uh, and when politicians are uh, that start spreading climate misinformation, that's when it becomes really problematic.
1: So when you say conservative organizations, do you mean conservative media organizations or more across the board? Uh,
0: when I say conservative groups, I mean uh, more like think tanks or organizations that are their whole purpose is to promote um, conservative politics, ideas like unregulated free markets or free market fundamentalism.
1: We're speaking with John Cook, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at Monash University and has bravely taken the step for us of surveying the internet to find out what people are saying about science and and what kind of impacts that might have on the push for change in various areas, particularly climate science. That's his uh, focus at the moment. John, is this a bigger problem now than it was, say, a few years ago, these, these contrarian claims that you've been studying?
0: It's a bigger problem in the sense that because misinformation has been out there uh, or climate misinformation poisoning the public discussion for several decades, the public have been getting more and more polarised. So right now we're at peak polarisation. People um, base and this is obviously this is more in certain countries than others, but in the US and then to a lesser extent, Australia, People base their beliefs about climate change and climate science on which political group they belong to.
1: So it's that that clear that if you belong to one group, you'll you'll believe this about climate science, and if you belong to another, you'll believe something else.
0: Yeah, that's that's about right. There was really good research um, by Matthew Hornsey from the University of Queensland finding that the biggest driver of our attitudes about climate change were. Our political affiliation—who we vote for.
1: So, does that mean it's it's squarely an ideological thing?
0: It has become more so. It used to be less polarised, like, but over the last few decades, we've just seen this gradual um, fracturing of the public, and um, people on the left and people on the right have been getting further and further apart in the beliefs about climate change.
1: Some people might think of that example of uh, GM science, genetically modified food, that the idea that some of the people who were supportive of climate change scientists, even uh, science even early on were at the same time more sceptical of the research around GM foods, that kind of environmentally aware, environmentally engaged section of the community. Does that hold true, John?
0: So um, my uh, my former PhD supervisor Stefan Lewandowski he did a big survey of of public opinion about a lot of different scientific topics like climate change vaccination GM and he found that while there was a big uh, political divide over climate change there wasn't any significant uh, shift across the political spectrum when it came to GM so we have this perception that uh, it's Like greenies and like Greenpeace activists that are protesting against, um, GMs and that certainly there are individuals and groups that do that. But when you look at the public as a whole, there's not really a significant difference between people on the left and the right towards GMs.
1: It's really interesting, John Cook, I noticed there's recently been a survey by the the company 3M about the levels of trust in science around the world. It was a relatively small sample size in Australia. I think they had a thousand respondents per country. But they showed that, you know, we had one of the highest rates of trust in science and scientists in the world. Nine in 10 of us think that, you know, they're pretty credible. Uh, And it's even had a bump during the pandemic. So how does that tally with what you're seeing?
0: Yeah, I haven't seen that study. It sounds really interesting and encouraging, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I just lived for four years in the US and it was a bit of a dumpster fire over there and the levels of polarisation were quite off the scale and a bit discouraging. Um, what I found, well, I've only really studied Australia and the US and I find that um, there are similar patterns, but with US the dial is turned up to maximum, so the there are there are Polarization trends in Australia, but they're much steeper in the US. So yeah, unfortunately I haven't, I haven't looked across multiple countries yet.
1: Well, I suppose you could see the US as a kind of cautionary tale if if uh, yes. things get out of hand in the same way here. So, John Cook, how do we deal with this, is, this misinformation, this, as you say, you know, that lowers the credibility of scientists and, and makes it harder to push for change, such as a, a shift to renewables, if the, you've got people constantly kind of chipping away at this idea that that's a good idea or that or that it's possible or that it's feasible or that it's uh, value for money. Does it help if this kind of misinformation Information is quickly fact checked and debunked?
0: Well, there's lots of things that we can do and, and need to do. Um, certainly, fact checking plays a role. Uh, I've been focusing um, more on a specific type of fact checking. The, the nerdy word for it would be logic checking, which is explaining how misinformation misleads or what are the logical fallacies in misinformation, which is in, in another way of saying building people's critical thinking or their BS detectors, so they can spot attempts to mislead them. We like that I, here on Life Matters, and we are a nerd-friendly zone, just so you know. <laughs> Great. So I find that um, when people understand the different misleading techniques used in misinformation, they can spot those across any topic, because the same techniques are used across multiple topics.
1: Well, if as you said, it's becoming more tribalised, people say these are my political beliefs. Therefore, I will include this set of beliefs about, for example, climate science. How do you convince people to change their ideas if, if you know, if their their community says that they're right?
0: Yeah, it's really hard, and I think you put your finger on it. That it's when their community thinks one thing, and the science says another, and you're trying to convince an individual in that community you're asking them to go against their social group. And that's that's really asking a lot. It's really difficult for people to do that. What I found in my research was when, and this is just one avenue, I think there are multiple avenues, there's no single like magic bullet to this kind of problem, but I found that when you explain techniques used to mislead in a non-polarised topic, then that helps them spot the same technique in a polarised topic. So it's kind of a way to sidestep those cultural triggers and build people's resilience to misinformation.
1: Okay. So you give them the tools in a in a kind of less emotionally loaded, emotionally fraught, uh, socially vulnerable setting, and then they can
0: use it elsewhere. Exactly. I inoculated people and, and in our, what we, we call this inoculation, basically. basically it's exposing people to a weakened form of the misinformation so that they build up immunity. Well, I found that when I inoculated people against a technique in tobacco misinformation, which is much less polarized, then I showed them the same technique uh, in climate misinformation, that technique no longer used was was effective in misleading people. Uh, across the political spectrum. It, it basically depolarised the misinformation.
1: Well, and John Cook, that really raises the question of who benefits from misinformation? Because with tobacco, it's clear, isn't it? There's a, there's mm. a clear uh, money-making um, incentive going on there. What happens with something like climate science? Who benefits from destabilising our trust in climate science?
0: A couple of different groups. Certainly fossil fuel companies benefit if we continue to buy their products. So in the same way that tobacco is selling us cigarettes, fossil fuel industry is are selling us um, fossil fuel energy. So they have a vested interest to keep us from transitioning away from fossil fuels. But also, uh, and I think this is more dangerous, it's really people who want to keep um, industry unregulated. They they want the fossil fuel companies to keep going, but more broadly, they, they believe in like political ideologies like small government and deregulation. Uh, And that has, it's really when you couple that ideological kind of group with um, fossil fuel funding that you get these really effective misinformation campaigns.
1: The funding thing is a a bit of a two-edged sword, according to a lot of people on our Facebook page and text line, John. uh, One says scientists need to disclose their research funding source as the public needs to be certain that there's no conflict of interest. And uh, Sam in Melbourne says sometimes it's not science itself, but the study of science by scientists, which is doubted. People are fallible. Models are imperfect. And the past is full of examples of where science Uh, Sam puts it in quote marks, has been corrupted by moneyed interests such as tobacco, breast implants, and even recently, burying climate science by the fossil fuel industry. So what issues are are at work there, John? Uh, Can research be trusted if it's funded by particular groups or corporations or governments?
0: Certainly, scientists should disclose their funding. And the more transparency in science and scientific research, the better. Uh, and and this actually comes back to something you were asking about earlier. How do we build trust? I think that scientists being more transparent and explaining how science works can help build public trust in in not just science, like capital S science, but um, just the scientific method, uh, this, this approach that scientists take to understanding how the world works. Um, I forget the rest of the question by by the time I get to finishing my answer.
1: I got a bit too excited and ranged too wide, I think, as well. We're speaking with John Cook, a postdoctoral research fellow at Monash University, about the evidence he's seen of a rise in mistrust in science and the quite concrete effects that's having in the world when that misinformation becomes widely disseminated. Um, John, another interesting thing out of this 3M survey that I know you haven't seen, but it said that four in five Australians say they would like to hear more from scientists about their work. Do scientists need some more help to communicate their ideas more effectively?
0: Definitely. Uh, the more that scientists engage with the public, the better. I think that's another big part of building public trust. And scientists are like a very trusted source in climate change. Scientists are the most trusted, or university scientists, I think is what other surveys have found, are the most trusted source of climate information. So they, they, they need to engage with the public, but often scientists aren't the best communicators. Like we, we kind of have, uh, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but we kind of have our humanity trained out of us when we're taught all the objective scientific methods. Uh, and so I think that we, scientists need help, um, develop becoming better communicators. Uh, and I think a really basic way to to incentivize scientists is is build public engagement into some of the incentives that like universities might have. We are h- highly incentivized to publish papers and go to conferences. I think that if if um engaging with the public was part of those impact kind of measures that that scientists have to meet, then we would be um would, you would see more scientists engaging with the public.
1: Well, we were thinking about this in the office because we realised that we now know the names of a lot of epidemiologists after the Mm -hmm. last two years and and bioscientists and and whatnot. Uh, But is that a double-edged sword too? Because now we can see various um, epidemiologists in particular with different views in the media and people start to wonder who they can trust.
0: Yeah, I mean... (laughs) that that's a tougher issue i guess like covid was really hard it made me kind of grateful that i was working in climate change because because <laughs> covid was we were just learning things as we went along and everything was new um, and that's a really hard place for scientists to be as they as they're discovering uh, you know the research is coming out week by week whereas with climate change we've been you know a lot of this science is decades old or or you know, going back to the like 1900s, even 1800s, um, it's much more mature science. So it, it kind of depends on on where the science is at and and how mature it is. But even so, I think again, explaining how science works, and even with COVID and having these diversities of opinions, having the scientists explain that we're we're collecting the research, we're figuring this out. Mm. Um, when we're at the edges of knowledge, I think that is also an opportunity to explain how science works and how exciting science can be.
1: Yeah, indeed. John Cook, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. John Cook's a postdoctoral research fellow at Monash University looking at distrust of science. And we asked on our Facebook page why some people mistrust science. Jonathan says about 12 scrolls past this post, top scientist admits space telescope image was actually a slice of chorizo. And there it is, says Jonathan. You're listening to Life Matters. Up next, animals and ethics. Our guest will crack open some assumptions about our relationship with animals that we think of as wild. This is RN. Imagine a painting of Australian landscape Now, step inside This vast southern continent has captured the imagination of our artists for millennia Join Rachel Griffiths on an artistic quest deep into six masterpieces I'll travel to the exact spot (laughs) Where our beloved artists captured their iconic images Great Southern Landscapes There it is Starts tonight on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView Humans and animals have cohabited on the planet for hundreds of thousands of years. But in recent times, that relationship has become a bit strained. As human populations expand into what was once the territory of wild animals alone, we have drastically altered their natural environment and living conditions. And the dilemma of how we should consider and treat wild animals has never been more difficult than it is right now. Emma Maris is an environmental journalist. She spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. Her latest book is called Wild Souls, Freedom and Flourishing in the Non-Human World. Emma, welcome to Life Matters.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
1: We're happy to have you. Now, when you were growing up, you spent quite a bit of time at the Seattle Zoo in Washington. How did those experiences shape your thinking about wild animals?
2: One thing that I think a lot of zoos do is project an image of being conservation organizations that help wild animals as well as take care of the animals that they have in the zoo. And so it sort of trained me to think about wild animals mostly as instances of their species, sort of, here's one polar bear that stands for the whole species, uh, rather than worrying about that particular polar bear's happiness.
1: So you don't buy the argument that going to a zoo and seeing these animals can spark a kind of wider interest in nature generally?
2: Well, I did for many years. I took my own kids to the zoo. Um, But when I came to write this book about how we should interact with wild animals, I decided to dig into this sort of claim that zoos are uh, a very strong conservation force. Um, And the more I looked, the more I found that there was not that much going on in zoos to justify these animals being stuck there. And I also found a lot of research suggesting that many of them are really very unhappy in captivity. So I began to change my mind about how zoos are currently run. I think they do need to change quite a bit.
1: That was a really interesting thing for me to learn that there's a a lot of culling of uh, excess animals in zoos and that animals develop ticks that that some scientists say are, are evidence that they're not happy. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so in a lot of the larger mammals, and these are, you know, often the animals that people are most excited about seeing, things like elephants, or bears, or tigers, um, being in captivity will have the, see them develop these repetitive behaviors like swaying or pacing or sometimes flicking their tongues. Um, and these are generally seen in the field as signs that they're not mentally well, that they're unhappy.
1: And Emma, you came up with this interesting idea for how zoos should should change. It sounds a bit like they're kind of, that they would grandfather uh, losing animals over time. Explain to us how that might work.
2: Well, so zoos do do have uh, conservation breeding programs where they're breeding animals that they hope to put back out into the wild someday. But these are actually very much the minority of the animals that you see at the zoo. So what I think they should do is sort of transition over time towards mostly doing that kind of conservation breeding that the goal is to get the animals back out. And that means stopping breeding animals like elephants or tigers, where it doesn't really work to put them back out into the wild, where they don't. that kind of reintroduction doesn't really work. So take care of the animals that you've got, you know, lavish them with love and care, but don't breed more if you know that they'll spend their whole lives in captivity at the zoo.
1: It really, your book really made me question the way we think about wild animals because they do have a particular status in our thinking, don't they, as compared to pets or livestock or random city birds and and mammals?
2: Yes, I mean, I was always brought up to sort of say, let nature take its course. And, and the sort of first rule of dealing with wild animals is don't mess with them and don't influence them and don't uh, get in their business. Um, but the kind of the question that my book asks is, is that still a good enough rule when we've changed the whole earth? And so we've changed their lives, even if they're far away from our cities.
1: So are you saying there are no wild animals, truly wild animals left anymore?
2: It depends on how you define wild. If you define wild as completely uninfluenced by humanity, then yeah, I don't think there are any wild animals left. Um, But I kind of go in the book to redefine and rethink about wildness as having more to do with the freedom of individual animals to sort of do what they want to do all day. Well, that's really interesting,
1: isn't it? Because I think when a lot of us think of wild animals, we, we, they do have a special place in our hearts. We, we have this romantic idea that they are free. You know, they might be free to be eaten by a larger animal or to savage some smaller animal, but it's, it's a particular uncontrolled uh, space in our imaginations as well as in the world. Are you saying that that's not true for wild animals anymore?
2: Yeah, and actually, you know, I came to Australia twice to do the reporting for this book because it's especially true in Australia because of the kind of intensive management that's required to protect some of your most special native uh, animals there. So there's a, just a ton of fence building and, uh, you know, killing of cats and foxes and hands-on management. And then, of course, on, layered on top of all of that, uh, there's agricultural management There's also climate change. So, yeah, all of the animals that we think of as wild, back and beyond, they're living in lives that are shaped by human action.
1: That was a really interesting point where you visit this uh, conservation reserve in South Australia, and there's that tension between uh, killing the introduced animals to preserve the native animals. What are some ways that humans can navigate that?
2: This turns out to be, I think, one of the most difficult ethical conundrums that I talk about in the book, because we all want to save endangered species from extinction. But in places like Australia, that often means killing a lot of individual other animals. And we've got to remember that these cats and foxes and rats and mice, you know, they don't know they're the bad guys. They don't know they're in the wrong place. That's, that's where they were born. So it is ethically tricky to balance our sort of duties to be kind to individual animals with what we think of as our duties to stop things from going extinct. It's a really tricky one.
1: And it's also about the the delicate ecosystems, isn't it, a lot of times in Australia, you know, the, the hooves of the introduced animals mash up these delicate balances of different organisms. And I know that you've written about that in a previous book too, that you say that our responsibility is to uh, not stop all change but to preserve the ability of ecosystems to adapt to change. Isn't it the same for the animals? We need to make sure that native animals in places like Australia can continue their species, even if that comes at the expense of some of the introduced species?
2: Yeah, so I, I profile two di- different uh, kind of schools of thought in the book. One, which is that uh, we can uh, mostly do good by trying to remove introduced species like cats and foxes, and that this is just how we're going to have to do it. Um, and then another school of thought, which is that actually cats and foxes might be able to coexist with some of these animals in the future, especially if we stop killing uh, dingoes so that the dingoes can then control the cats and foxes. And so you get into this idea of a, a future food web, which is quite a bit different than the past food web, but that might be able, theoretically anyway, uh, to perpetuate all the species. And there's so much research that still needs to be done on these questions But I think it's very interesting that people are asking them.
1: It was interesting too, the South Australian Conservation Reserve trying to teach a few successive generations of native species how to be scared of predators. Were they successful?
2: Yeah, this is such a fascinating project at Arid Recovery, which is a really great reserve. They're trying to uh, see if they can not just teach individual, uh, you know, bilbies and betongs to to learn how to be wary around cats, but actually to sort of breed a lineage of these animals that can coexist with cats by letting them be exposed to low numbers of cats. So they're actually kind of trying to fast forward evolution here. It's really interesting. Is it working? Yeah, well, preliminary, it's uh, very early days, right? You know, they have to wait for these things to breed and reproduce, and luckily some of them are pretty quick. Um, But I was there, and I was able going into the two different enclosures, one where they had been working on this and one where there were no cats and hadn't been cats for gazillions of generations of these animals, and you could see the difference in their behavior. We almost ran over the animals that were not used to cats because they were so chill and unwary, and they were not nervous at all. Um, whereas the, cat, the, the bilbies and, and betongs in the other enclosure were much more likely to scamper out of the way because they had to live with a small number of cats. So you could, even though, you know, that, that's not a, an official data collection, but their papers also suggest that they are seeing some effect.
1: I found it fascinating too, Emma Maris, how you talk about this idea of flourishing, that we want to make sure that animals can experience flourishing in their world. How can we tell? Like, how can we see into a, an animal's mind and work out how it's feeling about its life?
2: Yeah, we can't, which is what makes it so difficult, you know, and we can't just sit down, you know, a bilby or a bat or something and say, well, what, do you, what really makes you happy? What, what counts as a good life for you? So we have to sort of infer it from what we see, how we see their behavior. So going back to the zoos, you know, if we see a tiger pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that's a way that the tiger can tell us that it's not flourishing. Um, In the book, I argue that for a lot of animals, if we give them more space and more opportunities to make their own choices, they're more likely to flourish in their own ways. We don't have to know exactly what makes makes them happy and provide it for them like they're our pets. But if we give them lots of space and and kind of the resources that they need, they can choose their own flourishing. That's We have to
1: know a bit about them, though, don't we, to work out what what kind of choices they might make, what kind of resources they might need to, to make those choices?
2: Yes, that's true. And sometimes we don't know. I mean, there's fun stories about animals that were very endangered coming back and then suddenly you see them behaving in ways that people didn't expect because we just didn't know enough about their behavior. Um, uh, so... You know, and I, I think that there will always be a gap there between what we want, you know, this sort of perfect happiness we would like to see for every animal and the fact that ecosystems are made up of food webs, which means that in order for the predator to be happy, there might be suffering for the prey. And that's the kind of tension that I end up with at the very end of the book, which is that nature itself is not set up to make everybody happy all the time.
1: Well, and the other thing too is that w- you note that we're quite vested in the idea that some animals don't feel pain or don't feel much pain or don't mind if we fish them out of the water or things like that. And, and you discover that fish actually make plans and are curious. And I had to blow some of my ideas out of the water there. That sounds Me like a- too. That
2: was a tough one for me because before I read that uh, research material, I ate a lot of fish. Yeah. And now, <laughs> you know, I think that we get, we get brought up with this idea that fish are just different somehow and they don't feel pain and they're not like other animals, but they are, they're just underwater. It's really mind-blowing. And it makes it, as
1: you said, it's quite an ethical minefield. Do you have some rules for us, Emma Maris, that we can use to make these decisions about how we interact with wild animals and, and non-wild animals?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, when I started the project, I knew that the rule of just let nature take its course was no longer good enough because uh, humans have sort of become nature in so many places. And I was hoping I'd find a really short, pithy answer just about that same length to guide us now. But unfortunately, it's just not that simple. There's going to be so many case-by-case decisions. So in the last chapter of the book, I do offer a kind of like a framework for working through your own sense of values, what's important to you and what you value, and then applying that to some of these conundrums. But it's never going to be quite as simple as just hands off.
1: Well, yes. And one of the options is choose the least morally wrong option. And another one is, is if necessary, grieve. Is there going to be a certain amount of grieving when it comes to humans making decisions for and about animals?
2: Yes, definitely. I mean, we've made, you know, as a species, we've made some bad decisions in the past that have locked us into some bad scenarios now. And, and the introduced predators problem is a prime example. I mean, I think that in some cases we, we may well choose that we need to continue to kill some of these introduced animals to save native species. But that's, that's a painful decision. It's not something we should take lightly. And it may be that instead of inuring ourselves emotionally or demonising the animals as if they're somehow swims- bad guys, that we should allow ourselves to grieve a little bit if that's what we feel like we have to do.
1: Well, and when it comes to pithy aphorisms, you did include a very lovely pithy quote in the start of your book from a book called Braiding Sweetgrass on flourishing. Could you share that with
2: us? Well, I'll have to just go to the bookshelf and uh, <laughs> pull it up here. Luckily, I've been using copies of my own book to hold up my computer for zoom calls so here it is all flourishing she says is mutual
1: that is a lovely way to end this if we can keep that in the front of our minds when we're making our difficult choices that may help emma maris thank you so much for joining us on life matters today it was a pleasure emma's the author of wild souls freedom and flourishing in the non-human world as many as well as other books and opinion pieces very interesting reading if you uh, look up her writing online.
0: Do you have a favourite Australian tree?
2: Is there a tree that you love the sound of?
0: Or the smell of?
2: A great tree to climb or where amazing animals live?
0: This August, ABC Science is looking for Australia's favourite tree.
2: Russell, online now to leaf through our long list.
0: And help us whittle down the options.
2: Go to abc.net.au slash trees.
0: And stay rooted to RN for more about Australia's
2: top trunks.
0: (laughs)
1: The first time Richard Crawley held a camera and clicked the shutter, it was the beginning of the rest of his life, basically. He was only a young boy, but that urge to record his life experiences never faded. He later worked as a photographer, but also filmed... Everything. His wife and son, cats, dogs, cows, a box of tomatoes, literally everything. His son, James Crawley, is now a filmmaker too, and he's turned the camera on both of them in his own attempt to make sense of their relationship. His documentary, Volcano Man, is a quirky, honest account of a family in transition. It's showing as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Richard Crawley and James Crawley, welcome to Life Matters.
3: Hello. Thank you,
1: Hilary. Great to have you both <laughs> with us. Richard, do you remember the first photo you ever took and, and how it made you feel?
3: <laughs> well, Hilary, I do. Yes, it was on my seventh birthday when I was given a, a brownie box camera, you know, one of those boxy things that you look down and through. And um, yeah, I, I set the, the sort of a family group up and I just remember the extraordinary delight of that clunk when I press the shutter, and that was something that stayed with me forever, I think.
1: It was such a long time to wait, though, wasn't it, Till you saw the results? Fast forward to video, you must have thought (laughs) your Christmases had all come at once.
3: Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Well, I did teach myself... uh, I'm totally self-taught, so I built a dark room at the age of seven and probably nearly killed myself with the fumes in there. But anyhow, I did that and sort of learned how to do that. But yeah, you're quite right. There's a, and that's an interesting question too. We better not get off the subject between <laughs> using using film and digital. <laughs> there's a very big difference.
1: I think we're, there's going to be lots of opportunities to get off track on this interview, and we'll try and <laughs> wrestle it back. Um, Richard, there are some fantastic stories in the film of, you know, you setting up a dark room in the hold of the ship that you can came to Australia on, the lovely story of how you snuck your way into becoming a rock photographer. I'm going to have to leave those for people to watch the film because they are worth it. But, James, your childhood was comprehensively filmed. What was that Mm. like?
4: Well, it was just normal for me at the time, but um, on reflection, probably uh, unique. I mean, you know, going back to when when I was a kid, I guess that was unique. But uh, you know, watching watching yourself being born isn't something uh, I guess everyone does. No. Um, so, so, yeah, no, it was it was just normal for me.
1: So, is was there a point where you realised? Oh, I don't think everyone else's dad does this.
4: Uh, yes, but there was plenty of things my dad did that other dads didn't do. Um, Such that's, as
1: that's, <laughs> true, that's
4: true of everyone. That's true of everyone. Everyone has you know a unique set
1: of parents. That's true. Well, if you could give us a sense, you know this is going to be embarrassing for you, Richard. but James, if you could yeah, give us a sense right. of your dad's personality and and why it's so powerful when we see it on the film?
4: I mean, yeah, I mean, I did have someone once tell me, you know if you can if you can bottle uh, bottle this guy's energy, you know you'll you'll be a very wealthy man. Um, and he's just very unique. I mean, I love him to bits. He's just a great guy, but you know everyone that meets him thinks he's that. Coolest dad you've ever met, um, and that is true, to um, very much true. But, you know, I obviously, as any son or, or daughter would, I get the full, I guess, version uh, of, my, of my parents, and that's, I guess, what the film was about. You know, you get this, this, this great guy on one hand and you get this complicated guy on the other hand, this relationship that he and I have, which is great, but, you know, with all its intricacies as well.
1: Yeah, one of my uncles said to me recently, "Everyone's an unusual person." I thought that was pretty useful. But <laughs> James, yeah. as you say, you know, there's that energy and spontaneity, spontaneity and and humour that we see uh, on the the videotapes from your childhood. But there's other things too. You found some incredible, incredibly moving tapes when you started sifting through Richard's uh, recordings. Tell us about that. I,
4: I did. I um I found uh, thirty or forty hours of of footage he had filmed um after my mother had passed away his his wife and it was you know a self confessional um set of tapes and it was you know dad talking in the moment of the grief um as to what he was going through which you know i came down to his uh, to his house in country victoria over on christmas and sat there and yeah watched hours and hours of tapes of uh, over a weekend and um you know everyone has this version of their dad from a from a kid you know this sort of pillar of strength that is that is your father and then when you start seeing cracks in that armor it's uh it's pretty revealing and pretty interesting and you know you start and everyone has this revelation at you know one point or another um so yeah that's what that's what sparks i guess the idea of investigating the film and trying to create a, a wider story about it but yeah the grief tapes was was what I discovered to answer your question.
1: Well, and Richard, what was it like when James came to you and said, I want to put these incredibly raw <clears throat> confessional tapes into a film that everyone's going to see?
3: Well, perhaps like a lot of fathers, I mean, uh, uh, James, you know, I love him more than anything, <laughs> of course. Uh, and he's also my best friend, which is, you know, in a way, you know, besides my partner, you know, my current partner. But, I mean, you know, he's also, you know, he's so... Um, wow. Part of me that, in a sense, but he's an individual. Now, what I'm trying to say is that I had total trust in his view, and I just said, You've got carte blanche to do anything you want to make this a great film. And I think he has. (laughs) So that's. Yeah, it was quite courageous, I know, but, you know, that's fine. Well, it Extremely was, courageous of you.
1: Yeah, but it was interesting that looking was, at all the the, the images and um, and film from uh, back in the day when, you know, when you and Carol got together, Richard, and all through yeah. your life together with, with mm. James as a young fella t- uh, tottering around on his tiny little <laughs> feet and, and beyond. Did you yeah. think, and, and then, you know, looking at these grief tapes, as you've said, did yeah. you feel like all those things were one day going to be seen or were they just for you
3: well yeah that's an interesting question i mean i kind of everything i've always ever done whether it's film or video is for the celebration of it i mean yeah the grief takes a little bit different but at the same time you know very much the, the the celebration of of the moment you know even whether you ever see the film in the end you ever even develop it but yeah um and i i i i I guess I was thinking about making a film about grief myself from a very personal perspective that's why I shot the stuff as well as as well as sort of wanting to get out my emotions and express them that way uh, but in the end, unfortunately, I just couldn't be objective. I looked at the stuff i couldn't I couldn't stand back I couldn't look at it and so this is where my brilliant son came in and um put the whole thing together so the film did get made <laughs> but not finished by me
1: so. well carol sounds like she was quite different to you in some ways she's this calm <laughs> quiet presence but not afraid to speak her mind i love the the oh, moments no, where her no, voice no, comes no, out no, no.
3: we we, we, <laughs> we were attraction of opposites you know i say we are attraction of opposites this is my view but anyhow she 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 very much was a quiet and considered person i'm not trying to imply i'm totally not that but I guess I was the extrovert and she was more the introvert, yeah. And she tolerated me pointing this funny video camera at her most of the time.
1: Yes, she's almost (laughs) always smiling.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, she told me to rack off enough times too, (laughs) I assure you.
1: Well, and Richard, when she died, when James was only in his early 20s, how did you... 21. 21. How did you approach your grief at the time, Richard?
3: Whoa. Well yeah, well, I mean, when these things happen and grief is a, you know, they say there's seven stages of grief. Well, I think if there are, it's different for everyone. And grief is a journey. It's, there's no closure. I mean, in the end, you do learn to live with the situation and I'm fine and I know Carol's fine and all that. But the point is it's, it's a journey. And so, sorry, what was the question? Well, <laughs> um, how, how
1: did you approach your grieving at the time? What did you do?
3: Oh, I, uh, well, Well, immediately after Carol died, I remember, j J you remember this? We went to to Hall's Gap. We went to the Grampians in the middle of September and and went camping for a week. And it just, it was appalling weather. And, you know, it was, was, and I just, well... I think a tree almost almost flattened our tent at one
1: point.
3: (laughs) It was was almost a catastrophe, though. Yeah, the whole thing. But, no, emotionally, it was incredibly tough, yes. And James was very much the stalwart for me at that stage, you know, I was, I, I was, well, I mean, I know he was absolutely devastated as well, but so at best we both just hung on and that's the thing with grief, you've got to hang on and, and then it's almost like the whole world starts rocking and then it eventually rocks less, you know?
1: Yeah, I love that, the, the camping. Sometimes you've just got to put yourself in a place where the elements are matching your internal mood, <laughs> yeah, I think. But James, exactly watching the film, it looks like you and your dad uh, have quite different uh, approaches to how to deal with this, this seismic event. What was it like for you at that time?
4: Yeah, well, I probably, uh, well, not probably, I did internalise it a lot more than, than Dad uh, perhaps did. Um, and it took me a long time really, I think, to just wrap my head around the whole thing on, to be able to even talk about it. You know, it's incredible that I'm now on the radio talking about it with, you know, semi-intelligibly, Yes, yeah. um, very well. But, you know, like, I, did, I, I just wouldn't have been able to even wrap my head around what the feeling was, you know, back then. And, uh, yeah, externalizing it was very, very hard. Um, and that was kind of one of the big motivating factors for making the film, really, because if I can make it make sense, you know, make it make sense in the film, then. Perhaps my head will make sense too.
1: It was fascinating seeing you go through old journals in the film. So you had taken this refuge in writing. Your Mm. dad had taken refuge in these tapes and in, you know, continuing to live life and having this perspective that, you know, Carol had just changed state and was still there. And there were these differences and, and tensions, it seems, at times between you. Did making the film change that? Did it affect your relationship, James?
4: I mean, it, well, everything affects, affects every, uh, every part of the relationship, I guess. But what it has done, which has been amazing, is given us, uh, I guess, the language mm. to be able to respectfully disagree about some things. Um, you know, we, we, uh, Dad, I won't speak for you, Dad, but, you know, you, you do mm. believe in ever sort of you never really die, I guess. Well, yeah, I think friends. we're eternal.
0: <laughs> yeah,
4: that's right. And whereas I don't. Um, I don't believe that. I think we're here and then we're not here. And that's what I had to, and I'm fine with that. And I think that's a great thought myself.
3: Mm. And that's what I had to come to terms with. Um, can, I, can, can I answer the question too? Sure. I think our, okay. our relationships become stronger since the film. Absolutely it has. Yeah, it's great. It's really good. Because the important thing is that you, you talk about things, you know, in this world. It's really important. And communication mm. is, I mean, words are inexact enough, but... So if you don't even try and use them, you're in real trouble. <laughs> that we have.
1: Did it help you, Richard, to see James more as an adult, maybe? Because sometimes it's hard, isn't it, when you're looking at your children and thinking they're my kids, and then suddenly they they make this leap and they're 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 their oh, own yes. person.
3: Oh yeah. Well, as you just rightly said, and I think that's true for every parent, uh, and it's a, it's just evolution and. Um, part of the wonder I mean if it didn't happen it'd be really worrying <laughs> it'd be worse so yeah no it wasn't hard really it was an acceptance but you know Carol was such a wonderful woman it's important to you know she was you know her, her influence on you growing up Jamie was massive mm. you know obviously <laughs> you know she was a wonderful mother
1: well, and James, you've written that this, well, or you've, you've said that, that this film is a love letter to your mum. How do you think Carol mm. would have felt about seeing this film?
4: I, I, I think she would have been initially um, quite shocked, as I was, that, you know, who's going to care about this, you know, as if it'll, you know, play the, you know, why would people want to look at our little family? Um, but then I think she'd be incredibly proud. <laughs>
1: I think so too, yeah. just as an outsider looking in at this uh, this family portrayed on the film. I hope the Warrnambool screening uh, close to home on the 13th is fantastic. And thank you both so much for joining us on Life Matters today.
3: Oh, thanks Hilary, thanks for the, thanks very much
1: It's a pleasure, Richard Crawley uh, the star of Volcano Man and filmmaker James Crawley, his son who put it together using a lot of archival footage and also some really wonderful recreated scenes and uh, and really quirky shots. Uh, Volcano Man screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival you can see it in a cinema on the 11th of August in Melbourne, throughout regional Victoria after that and streaming online from the 11th to the 28th of August check out the MIF website for details. Details. Richard's also in a punk band around the area in Southwest Victoria, so you might catch him in pubs. Nat Tenchich, what are we catching uh, in terms of feedback today?
5: A lot of people loving hearing about wild animals, and someone here says animals, wild souls. But was really interested in 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 an Indigenous view on this. Sorry, a bit of a tongue twister there. I just yeah, yeah. quite a few of those to hit. Um, yeah, wondering if um, there's an Indigenous view that abnormals are happy and do they grieve at animal deaths for food and the like. And Sue says, em- Emma Maris completely reflects my thoughts and beliefs about zoos, animals in captivity, animals in the wild and animals in
1: general. Well, that Indigenous perspective around the world, you often see that idea of respect for the animals that you need to kill to eat, don't you? There's, there's that thread running through.
5: Absolutely. And Seeing them like a similar spirit at the similar level to big people are
1: in in the environment.
5: Uh, On our levels of trust in science, so completely on the other side of that, uh, you've had a lot to say about this. Uh, Someone here says, it all comes back to the availability of quality, affordable education and good science teaching, especially in the USA where public education funding is often... Terrible. Yeah. Probably varies. I think it varies state to state. Yeah. Someone else here says, the bigger question is why are some people willing to trust random YouTube dude rather than science and to trust their own social media research more than the scientific process and
1: peer review? Well, and as John said, a lot of us don't have a very good understanding of what the scientific method, the scientific process is. It would be very, very handy to have that illuminated for us in school, I think.
5: I think that's exactly right. You know, it's like you can t- you can teach scientific concepts, but if you don't teach how science Works then that's really where you start to come up against obstacles. Rosemary says uh, fewer kids seem to be learning science these days and there's an upsurge in Pentecostal faiths around the world and what you don't know enables suspicion, especially in this time of global influence. That's one view. Yes. Uh, Lynn says um, science is meant to be questioned. That's what makes it science. If it can't be debated, it's dogma and that's why they seek research grants. So very uh, very good point there too. Anne says it's a small minority that don't trust science The rest of us have rational thinking minds. This has been a really hot topic.
1: I think. Yeah, indeed. Well, it was fascinating to hear that, you know, nine in 10 of us still trust scientists in Australia. Absolutely. But there has been this rise in mistrust of scientific reporting, reporting of what science is doing. So um,
5: that's a worry. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as Anne said, oh, sorry, as Lynn said before, there's a lot of back and forth that kind of comes with that. Um, Christopher <laughs> reckons it's because of bad journalism. <laughs> um, and Ellie says that science is influenced by those paying for it, by politics, and by the inherent biases human beings have and are often unaware of. If you speak to a scientist who truly believes in pure science, they'll tell you that much of the science doesn't provide a black and white answer to our questions.
1: A lot going on. Nat, thank you. Thank you. Nat Tanchich gathering all that feedback and making sense of it for us here on Life Matters. Food is almost always good. That's my personal view, not necessarily endorsed by the ABC. But there are times when food comes freighted with extra meanings. For example, when you're on a date. What kind of food, the setting, who pays for it? These all become quite significant. Luckily, we have a food expert who can guide us through this culinary and romantic minefield. Alice Slavsky will join us next time on Life Matters to look at the best, the safest and the most... Shall we say, effective foods to eat when you're dating? I'm Hilary Harper. Join me then.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.